0: just say fat not curvy or chubby or chunky or fluffy or mortal love or, oh, big big or big guy or, big or husky under, or, or obese size. or overweight just say fat the very first piece was called a request from your fat friend and like 30,000 people read it in a week and I was like whoa okay Aim is to provoke people to question ideas that we've held on to for so long. The strongest bonding amongst women happens when people are talking about how much they hate their bodies. Oh, God. I had a woman take a melon out of my cart and she went, it's got too much sugar for you. It's a... the wellness industry is worth $4.5 trillion. This is like big tobacco levels of just lying to people. It's like they're trying to pull some Jedi mind trick. It's not a diet. (laughs) At the tender age of 11, I had already attended kids' fat day camps. It was my responsibility. Her size was my responsibility. You know, I was always like my father. Worried about losing control. Having cameras going sort of makes things bubble up. It is a real paradigm shift to look at someone my size and rather than thinking, boy, I wish that person would put in some effort, thinking, that person may have put in a great deal of effort. And that might have been what got them here. As a fat person, You figure out how to disappear yourself. That's the only way I have existed in the world. I just sent in the last chapter of the book. Oh my God! I took more from how you looked at yourself than how you looked at me. But I think that's how it gets passed along. Hi everybody, welcome to Maintenance Phase. (laughs) You will learn... (laughs)
1: Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Jeannie Finlay. She is the writer and director of the 2023 documentary, Your Fat Friend. It's a great look at Aubrey Gordon, the your fat friend of the title. She was an anonymous blogger, became a best-selling author, and now she's a podcaster. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the interview. Obviously I want to ask you about your fat friend, but I would love to know a little bit more about you and how you even got into the documentary business.
2: I'm a filmmaker. I'm based in Nottingham in England. And Your Fat Friends, my ninth feature film, I'm currently making my 10th. I started making docs because the conversations I had with people while I was filming them were the most fascinating and interesting thing. And so I just started filming them and that's how I organically became a filmmaker. And then the BBC commissioned me off the back of my artwork to make a 60 minute film and then I made a feature for IFC and it just As soon as I started making films, I just knew I'd found the thing I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I've made small films, like about the last record shop in Teesside, where I grew up, to being behind the scenes of the biggest television show in the world, Game of Thrones. But all the films I make share, a, don't know, maybe they're made with the same accent or sensibility.
1: How do you choose your subjects or do your subjects choose you?
2: Generally, I choose the subjects. I've only said yes twice. That was to HBO and Game of Thrones and to Freddie McConnell when I made Seahorse. But I decide if I'm in, I'm all in. So usually I have an idea or a story I want to tell. And then I go out and raise the money, find partners. And then sometimes it's you find the person to tell the story or you're just already telling a story. Orion, the man who would be king, it's like being an archaeologist and you're excavating the past. And with Aubrey on in Your Fat Friend, I wanted to make a poem about fatness. And when I found Aubrey, I knew I'd found the right person to tell that story.
1: How did you find Aubrey?
2: Aubrey went viral as an anonymous writer called Your Fat Friend. And she wrote this one piece called what I need when I talk about bodies. And she sent it out on Medium. It went viral six years ago. And I was one of the 30,000 people that read it in the first week. And I'd been researching an essay film about fatness. And then as soon as I read her essay, I just thought, oh my goodness, I want to know who is this anonymous person who's written this essay? It was emotional and making the personal political I just thought it was a great voice. She just sounded interesting. So we started talking on the phone because obviously I live in England. It's not a hop, skip and a jump to get to Portland, Oregon. But we started talking on the phone and she also, it just seemed interesting. She had this like loud voice. Her writing is so tender and gentle. And then as soon as I met her, I just knew. This was exciting. This was interesting. And then I met her parents and I knew that the different place that they were in. You've got Aubrey, someone who's trying to change the world and bring about sort of social change and help us to have different conversations about fat people in the world, but the fat on our own bodies. And then you've got family who were struggling to even say the word fat. And I like making films about messy human family drama (laughs) and I felt like I'd found everything that I needed. So this was my direction.
1: How long does it take to get in touch with her and how long does it take to then end up meeting her?
2: I got in touch with her immediately. It just felt exactly right. And we talked for a while. I think it was probably three or four months until we met. I was actually out in Los Angeles being interviewed by the showrunners for Game of Thrones. And I used it as an opportunity to go over to Portland and the producers of Game of Thrones loved that I was specking a new film while I was out there. The exec of Game of Thrones said, now that is a producer. (laughs) And I filmed her immediately. So I get to know people with a camera in my hand and I did a bunch of all sorts of different filming in Portland. And I met Aubrey on the last day and just, Thought, oh, this is really interesting. And then initially, her contribution was going to be voiced over but I, I, don't, I just love the contradictions of being a big sort of charismatic personality, but also being anonymous. How do you contain that? And yeah, like I said, the different place her family was at with the different place with the place Aubrey was at just seemed interesting to me.
1: I imagine being a documentary, and you really have to get your subject to trust you. How difficult or easy was it to get Aubrey to trust you with this?
2: Yeah, my films live and die on whether people trust me. And part of um, part of the way I achieve that is by being very careful about the projects I say yes to. And also looking, I'm a producer on all of my films that I direct, because it means that I can keep the promises that I make to the people that I put in my films. So I know that if I'm promising what the film is going to be co- Old. that is going to be the name the film will release under. And Aubrey watched my previous films, in particular The Great Hip Hop Hoax and Seahorse, The Dada Gave Birth. And she said, these are complicated stories that could have been told in any number of different ways, particularly with great hip-hop hoax. Those it's about these naughty boys who got a massive record deal from Sony. Convinced the world that they were the next sort of big LA rappers to arrive in the UK in the wake of Eminem. But they were actually two students from Dundee in Scotland who'd learned American accents from MTV and watching pop videos and conned their way into an enormous record deal. So it's a film about identity and made up sort of personas. And with that film, no one is evil or good. It's nuance and. The human condition is an endlessly nuanced thing, so I'm trying to make space for that in my films. And I think that Aubrey responded to that.
1: How often were you with her? As you said, you are thousands of miles away, and there's obviously scenes in the movie where she's filming herself. How often were you over there actually with her?
2: I was over quite, quite a lot of times. We're speaking on Zoom every week. And often, more often than once a week, there was a pandemic. So that meant that it was interesting. Like I started filming with Real Deal in February. I picked the project back up in February, 2020, ready to really go for it and was out in Portland in February, took out two 4K camera kits, left them there because I was going to be back on March the 20th and had all of these discussions with Aubrey about do we think this virus is a really a thing and then ended up having to teach her how to use the camera so we could keep things going cuz i just, i started work on your fat friend then i ended up making seahorse and game of thrones the last watch in between so i was out in LA quite a lot for game of thrones and every time i was out i would film with Aubrey and I think I worked. I spent something like over five months in Portland in all. It's not insignificant amount of time to be away from home and to like to be in someone's life and get to know the Pacific Northwest a bit. Because somewhere, I really like Portland. It's I feel like it's the Nottingham of America. <laughs> Just more rain and more lush. I think.
1: Yeah, I was curious how the pandemic affected you and. Gosh, that must have been really difficult just to even do traveling during the pandemic.
2: Yeah, it's really difficult. And also like the safety. Is it safe to fill? What should we be doing? And when things was getting easier and once we'd all been in our separate countries for quite a long time, I got dispensation from the American government to come out early. So I came out to the US where, yeah, when the country was still not open to foreigners, so I was allowed in, it was strange time, strange times, like people were still masking on the street in Portland, which was, which is something we never had in the UK, which is very interesting. It's just culturally very different.
1: You said that you spent about five months in Portland and then there's all the filming that she had to do on her own. How much footage was there for you to go through when everything was said and done?
2: It used to be so much easier to keep a track on how many hours of footage you shot because there would be a tape. One tape was an hour. And now everything's digital. It's really hard to say. Probably, I don't know, 300 hours maybe. I, I know on Game of Thrones we shot 900 hours. So I don't feel daunted by anything anymore in terms of scale of the project. I work with an editor called Alice Powell, who is endlessly creative but also really mindful of project management. So we always have a plan and we know what's we know what we're gonna do to, create, to navigate this enormous amount of stuff. With those unfurling observational stories, you end up you have to have an enormous amount of footage really just to I want the audience to experience what's happening in real time. So we shoot everything all the time.
1: It's a masterful documentary. And the moments that you have in there just feel like so many, I guess, for lack of a better term gifts that you're being handed these gifts, even a horrible moment, like when she's doxxed ends up turning into a positive. And I really appreciate just that you give us hope and, and understanding throughout the entire work.
2: Oh, that's wonderful too. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's something really powerful of bearing witness of the things as they're happening in real time. And he, Aubrey and I had a really good sort of communication going on, especially because we she knew intimately what it was like when I was making Seahorse. And that was a it was a film about a trans guy having a baby, getting pregnant. So there's all these steps in the process. And we really, on that film, we really got down the you've got to film everything all the time, the heartbreak and the positives, because you can't recreate that stuff. This isn't the joy of making independent doctors. You don't quite know where they're going to go. So there's the moment, your fat friend, where Aubrey knocks the camera that I've given her over, sits down to tell me on a Zoom what's been going on. And she says, oh, I had this call from this guy, a colleague. But we might do a podcast together. It's going to be called Main Interface. Who knew that podcast has now just hit 60 million downloads. And it's really just exciting to hear her talking about, just in passing, is this thing that might happen? Because sometimes we don't know what the big events of our life are going to be. Yeah. If you're doing retrospective storytelling, you twist and turn those moments, but. Actually anticipating and making sure you have them in an ob-doc ob- is it's part of the joy of it. It's really fun in the edit when you find them.
1: What would you say is the toughest part of making this documentary? Was it the pandemic or were there other hurdles for you?
2: In the pandemic it was tough, but it was tough for everyone in many different reasons. My God. How, what did we all go through for all of that time? My goodness. I think the things that were tough on this is talking about bodies is messy, complicated, emotional stuff. It made me feel a lot of things about my history with I'm a dropout from Weight Watchers. I realized that giving people money to make me feel bad about myself was just like being an agent of capitalism. The hell was I thinking? But It's messy stuff for me. Aubrey being doxed, but also experiencing enormous anxiety about facing the public. It's really challenging, challenging stuff. And these are, it's like tough terrain for her to go through. And also, like, the film feels deceptively simple, but it's a very tightly woven jumper. And the edit was really challenging. It's so funny when you watch the the films, when they feel right, they just flow and that they can feel very simple, but yeah, there's a lot of intricate breadcrumb trailing and weaving to get the film to come together.
1: When was the first time she got to see one of the final cuts and what did she think?
2: So I flew out to the US in October last year to show Aubrey. I sat with Aubrey, I sat with her dad and his partner Zach Rusty's partner Zach and then I flew to LA and sat with Pam and we all watched the film separately (laughs) so I watched it with them and they were all very open to the process but I employ non-binary consent on my filmmaking so just because you sign up for a film six years ago doesn't mean to say that we don't get a conversation at the end of the process because people have to live with this and we discussed consent throughout the filmmaking and the film they really enjoyed. And it was, I think that they all told me things that they hadn't told each other, which is a common experience that I have. The film is an opportunity to have difficult conversation. And we, I went home with the blessing to go and grade the film with no cuts, which, Is really unusual (laughs) For, for my films. People always have ideas about things that might be changed and this is it. They respected my vision and just let me go and put the film out.
1: What has been the response to the film?
2: It's been completely gobsmacking and amazing. I thought I'd made this small film that was a itch I wanted to scratch. Personally, and I knew that there would be some people would connect to it. And Aubrey's profile has raised enormously since we stopped filming. It was starting on the rise, and the interest in seeing the film has been massive. And someone wrote on Twitter the other day, If you have parents, you need to watch your fat friend film. And <laughs> I was like, Yes, I love that. Because I think. I think that the conversations that Aubrey has with her parents are the conversations that any of us might want to have with our family. It's really wonderful to hear parents in their 70s say, hey, I didn't get this right. Can I, let's have a conversation about this and to think about the stuff that's done it. It makes me feel really hopeful about that change is possible, societal change. However, films can be a small stepping stone in that thing. But Yeah, we've won won the Audience Award at Sheffield Documentary Festival. People flying in from across Europe to come and see the film and hear Aubrey speak, and it's been amazing. We've just done a week in DC TV in New York. So we've just done a week at DC TV in New York, Oscar qualifying, and we're going out to select theatres in the US and a full UK theatrical tour. And loads of our screenings have already sold out. So it's very exciting. You
1: said that you were working on this, on Seahorse, and on the Game of Thrones documentary all at the same time. Is that typical for you to have so many projects?
2: Yeah, I think it's the only way to be a documentary filmmaker. I mean, this, this is my only job. I don't do anything else. So I've got a production company, Glimmer Films, and my sort of sweet spot is to have a film in development film in production and one in theatres or one out the door. It just keeps things interesting because I like creative challenges and I'm interested in how you can deliver a film with care to audiences so that it feels a good experience. And we've been doing stuff on Your Fat Friend that feels, you know, we're doing some interesting audience stuff, getting theatres to engage with the idea of the size of their seats in their theater and to publish that information. But yeah, I'm always looking for what's the next film because I don't know where I'm going to find it. Sometimes just get, yeah, it's like falling in love. You just find something that you know, oh yeah, that's going to be the next film.
1: So what is the next film for you? What's in production for you?
2: I can't say too much about it, but I can tell you it's a northern... Folk story about some people taking on the UK government. So it's quite political. It's very gallows humor. And yeah, it's really exciting. We're working with BFI Doc Society to make the film,
1: which is great. Jeannie, thank you so much for your time and congratulations on your fat friend. It's a fantastic documentary.
2: Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Looks like a snake to me By dark sugar bowl My coffee gets cold Cause I don't wanna see That I've got no one to blame But my fat self That stupid lock should have thrown away the key. No, no, not I. I will survive right down here on my knees. Because I've got no one to blame but my I've got no one to blame but my I'm the biggest one.